They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. In Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. Do you think if we do you think if we started talking backwards, like if you could say some words backwards, people will think the episode is backwards? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what the point of that would be because the movie is structured that way, but it's not literally, you know, somebody they're not literally rewinding the film. Yeah. It's not literally told backwards. Yeah. To to be honest, we did discuss doing our episode backwards. So like we'd start with the end banter and then recommendations, then the review, then opening banter. But uh, uh, we decided it would be too complicated and too difficult and we're lazy and it's like nine o'clock at night. So we elected not to. And if you feel like that was a horrific mistake on our part, feel free to send us a message, send us a complaint straight to our complaint line, which is Elliot's phone number. All of you should have. Mm-hmm. I will respond to every complaint with a thoughtful apology and a proposal for how we can do better moving forward. That's very that's very thoughtful of you, Elliot. I think that's very nice of you. <laughs> I agree. All right. Uh, enough of all this chit chat. How about how about we get started? Let's let's talk about the let's talk about the film. I'm pretty let's, excited. This is. What? Let's let's talk about the film. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the film. Uh, firstly, this is our first request. So if you're wondering, can I request and we'll, they'll actually watch it? Yes, absolutely. Send us a request by any uh, messaging service that you feel like you can get into contact with us most easily. If that's, you know, text message, Instagram. Uh, smoke signals, carrier pigeon. I believe Elliot receives physical envelopes containing messages on paper, kind of like a, a real email sort of thing, a remail, if you will. This is some top quality boomer humor you've got uh, going on here. I'm secretly 45, actually, so that's, that's very in keeping. <laughs> yeah, do you want to – let's – just to sweeten the pot, let's shout out who this recommendation is coming from. Unless, obviously, they requested that you not do that. <laughs> I don't. I've been telling literally everyone that I've told that this this episode. Actually, a lot of people are very excited for this episode because this movie is. A lot of people see it; they like it a lot. So we're excited to disappoint them here. No, Hannah Henderson, coming from Syracuse, New York, requested this this flick. And so we tripped over ourselves to first have Will Spaulding on the podcast to watch his movie and then do this one. So This is for you, Hannah. This goes out to you. <laughs> All right. That's great. <laughs> she probably won't even listen to it. So <laughs> <laughs> just wants other people to hear about it. 
or maybe she actually hates this movie and is like and hates us and is playing a prank like oh, <laughs> have fun watching this terrible movie if so if so the prank let's start talking about the movie if so the prank is backfired because we love this movie i yes. am a huge fan uh let's talk about we're talking about memento if you can't read the name of the episode or the description which you should read because they're very funny every week so let me break it down real quick for you. Memento, 2001 film. It was the second picture directed by uh, modern master of the craft, Christopher Nolan, very well-known director. His second movie. Um, it was nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Original Screenplay and Best Editing, both of which it lost. What a tragedy. But this was really the movie that catapulted him into stardom and got him eventually the Batman license and then resulted in Nolan being one of the most well-known filmmakers of the day. And yeah, this is a heck of a movie. Elliot, take us away with your your initial thoughts from this this time watching the movie. Alright, so this is my fourth time watching this movie, I believe. Um, really, the first thing that sticks out to you about it is just how uh, banal the whole thing is. It's very, very rote, very cliche. It's just a sort of bog-standard kind of story. It's not, not much special about it. Ha 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 ha! I'm joking because because the truth is that actually it's 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 really unique and novel. Wow, funny stuff. Nathan's crying with laughter. Oh, thanks, Nathan. I'm crying because I had to sit through that joke. I'm crying. That's why I'm crying. That hurts my feelings. But what will? There is no greater balm for a wounded ego than talking about uh, Christopher Nolan movies. And yes, obviously, obviously, the number one talking point about this movie is its structure. If you ever look this movie up, there's a, there's this famous, or famous to people who know the movie, graph of, like, the movie's timeline, and it is wild. It's like... It's shaped sort of like the like a, a knife blade set uh, horizontally, and there are like it's hard to describe, but there are like knocks all all along uh, the top and bottom edges where the black and white sections are, and so the end of the movie is like <laughs> in the middle or something. It, it's 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 insane. But yes, this movie, basically, it starts at the ending, so like we said in the beginning, it doesn't actually go backwards, as in the on-screen action plays out linearly. It just then, when the scene is over, it will move back to the scene that took place chronologically immediately before that one and play it out until you get to uh, the beginning of the preceding or proceeding, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> of the scene that you saw before this one. And uh, I think I think it works really well. I think that Nolan does a really good job of 
sort of signposting throughout this movie, or like maybe that's the wrong word for it, but he will set up uh, notable events or occurrences very similar to the way that Groundhog Day type movies will set up notable events for the characters to notice are replaying when they go back through the same day. He will set up those kinds of things like writing that's been crossed out on the back of one of Leonard's pictures or uh, physical damage that people have suffered or Leonard's tattoos that you that are really easy to notice and you sort of keep them in the back of your mind and then it's very satisfying when the movie shows how they came about. Which is one of the big reasons why I definitely don't agree with the main criticism of this movie, that it's gimmicky and that, you know, it's a very basic sort of story if it was told chronologically and, like, yeah, I guess that's true. But it's true in the same way that, what? That Superman would be a really lame story if he didn't have superpowers and didn't come from an alien planet. Like, the the way the story is structured is a part of the movie. It's a part of the themes. It's a part of the reveals. It's not just, you know a normal movie that's playing backwards, the the fact that it's playing backwards is an integral part of how the movie works and why it works, like why it's successful. But, uh, yeah, so we can sort of pause there for a minute because obviously I'm very interested to know what you think about how this movie is structured. Uh, I love the structure of this movie. This is, I think, the fourth time I've seen this as well. And the thing that really struck me watching this this time, that even though I know the story, I understand black and white is moving forward in time, the color sections are moving us backward in time, so to speak. Even though I know all that, I still find so much enjoyment in watching all of the puzzle pieces come together. And maybe I'm just dumb, but the movie always instantly knocks me onto my heels that I'm like, okay, I got to be noticing all these things. I got to be paying attention because when the scene flips back, I got to be able to remember what already happened, which I think can also make the movie, I'm not going to say hard, but it's just another facet to the film that if you don't, if, you know, if it's late at night and your buddy's like, let's watch a movie just to watch and whatever, Memento is not the pick. Honestly, none of Nolan's movies are really the pick because they all require you. He describes a lot of his movies as like a puzzle box. And I think Memento is the perfect example of that, that it feels like you're putting together all of these puzzle pieces as you're watching the movie. And so it can feel very satisfying, like you said, Elliot, that he sets up a signpost like the broken window in the car. And then you watch the movie and you see how the window was broken, that it's very satisfying to piece together how the story is being told and what each of the reveals sort of means. So, and I would also echo, I told, <laughs> I told people beforehand that I was going to get super heated because someone in my film criticism class, when we watched, I bring up film criticism class a lot in this podcast, <laughs> which is, it sounds way more pretentious than it was. It was like a month long class. We did very little in it, but we watched Memento for one of the days, and when we talked about it the next day, 
one of the people in my class said exactly what you said, Elliot, that one of those common criticisms where they were like, if it was told straightforward, be pretty boring. And I just would echo that what you said, that the way the story is told is fundamental to the story. Because Leonard has short-term memory, we experience all of the scenes as much as we can in the same way he does. And I think it's a really fascinating way of structuring the movie. And I think Nolan and his team of editors and cinematographers really runs with this premise and really makes it pay off in a lot of really cool ways as you watch the movie. I don't remember you ever bringing up that class on this podcast before. I feel, I feel like I bring it up every week, honestly. <laughs> what? I, now, you're, now you've got me questioning my own existence more than your typical Nolan movie. Because I swear that's the first time you've talked about it. Weird. Weird. Maybe well, it's only... Maybe, maybe I just mention it in conversation a lot, and I just conflate the two. I don't know. It, it doesn't really matter. Anyway... Back to the movie. (laughs) Commercial break over. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so I do think that... So I agree, you definitely need to be in the right mindset to watch this movie. Uh, But even even knowing what happened, having watched it four times, there were moments where I was sort of getting overwhelmed, where I was like, oh, so... this person is doing this because of that reason, and that person is doing the other thing because of this other reason, and that it's it can be hard to keep track of motivations and like how each revelation fits in together, which is why I think that I think that it might be interesting after having watched the movie for the first time normally to watch it to watch it in the sort of in a linear timeline re-edited because i think that would give you kind of like a bird's eye view of the whole thing and maybe help in your comprehension i don't know i think on like the blu-ray edition uh it comes with the movie re-edited that way i that would be really weird to see i wonder how they would deal with the black and white sections I think they just put it in order. I think it's in order, like, from the first, the earliest moment in the film in time, which would be the first black and white section where Leonard answers the phone. So they do all the black and white sections, the change to color, and then all the color sections. Right. So, yeah, uh, man, it's really hard to know where to go next with this movie because there are so many moving parts to it. Let's talk about the plot. The characterization, the characters, the plot, theme, that kind of that kind of stuff. I think that this movie has some really interesting things to say about memory and about time, which is pretty pretty much par for the course for Nolan movies. Uh, I think it's really interesting how a lot of the characters, especially well, not especially, but, like, exclusively, the supporting characters around Leonard operate as if he's not a real person. Does that make sense? 
I mean, so the Teddy, the slash John G, the cop, you know, he's using him to make a bunch of money and get rid of this drug dealer. And presumably he's been doing similar things for as long as he's known him. And then uh, Natalie, the bartender, she's also using him to try to establish herself in her boyfriend's role, or at least uh, keep herself from dying. And then even like, even just the, not even side characters, but like the, the extras. So like the guy, the hotel clerk is using him to make money. And so I think it's really interesting how the movie, the movie's characters conflate having a past with like humanity or even having rights or being worthy of consideration yeah, I think it's really, it really, it works really well for me, and it works really well, obviously, within the structure of the movie, if that makes any sense, that memory is like, it's like a sort of currency that people trade in. Well, that doesn't even make sense. I don't know. I'm tired. <laughs> Do you understand sort of what I'm saying? Yeah, I get what you're saying. The supporting cast uses Leonard in a lot of ways that I think most normal people wouldn't use a regular, you know, a, I don't want to say regular, but like a, any common yokel. And they feel fine about using Leonard in that way because he won't remember it. And so there is multiple moments in the film where they make this statement that they're like, if you do something and you don't remember it, does it matter that it happened? Kind of like the, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? That it's like, does the world being perceived make the world or does the world exist outside perception? Which is a very deep philosophical question <laughs> that there's many different you know, kind of ways to land on, but the movie does a really fantastic job of raising these questions. I think by, I wrote it down in my notes, it constantly doubles back on itself that it establishes a thing and you think, you know, this fact, like it introduces Natalie and a lot of the early scenes with Natalie early in terms of the film, not in terms of linear time. <laughs> it's so hard to talk about this movie. <laughs> But a lot of the early scenes with Natalie and even with Teddy kind of established them as they're friendly with Leonard, they're making jokes with him, they're, they seem to be very nice. And then as the movie goes along, you realize none of that was true. And so it's kind of this sense where the movie itself is putting you in Leonard's position and is tricking you into being like, were these things that you thought you knew true when you knew them? Like, was anything that Leonard perceived really real? And especially with the end of the movie where it seems to imply that a lot of the things he's telling himself are lies, right? That the Sammy Jenkins stuff is just him disassociating from what he's done in the past, that he's been killing people for like a year almost is what Teddy seems to imply. And so the movie raises a lot of these questions about does, you know, is Lenny even capable of 
being a human being if he can't establish a person over a long period of time if all he can do is exist in moments and then hope that these moments all add up to something i don't know i find it really fascinating and i think the movie raises a lot of these questions in a way that like a lot of nolan's movies is very accessible and i'm a huge fan of that because i think philosophy should be accessible to all people because it's just thinking it's easy yeah, that was put a lot better than whatever nonsense I was fumbling for. Yeah, I I, I agree. Uh, I think that Leonard really has no other choice but to believe that his actions have worth, have, you know, impact independent of his perception of them because his perception of them is so fleeting, but everyone else around him, because they know that his perception is fleeting, they act as if how they treat him has no impact. Essentially, mm -hmm. it's almost like they act as if how they treat him isn't real or doesn't count, which I think, you know, that, that sort of heady philosophical theorizing about the nature of reality is something that you find a lot of in Nolan's movies. I mean, obviously in Inception and even in Interstellar, where they talk a lot about uh, feelings. <laughs> it's, it's more dramatic and impressive than that. But, you know, if you've seen Interstellar, they talk about the, I don't know, value of love as being as something that can exist independently of its utility that mm -hmm. kind of thing so this is a very strong theme that you can find running throughout nolan's movies and uh i don't know i think that it's it's probably at its most subtle in this movie or at least it's not as pronounced in this one as it would be later on. But in a lot of ways, I think that makes it a lot more satisfying to talk about because you sort of, you sort of have to really dig into the movie and draw it out from little moments of characterization. Like when Leonard is talking to Natalie early on in the movie, not in the movie's timeline. <laughs> and he's like, D the world still exists when you close your eyes or, you know, I ha and then at the very end, he says, I have to believe that the world still exists when I close my eyes. Yeah. Um, so I have a question. So a common critique on Nolan movies is that they're very cold and unemotional, that they address a lot of kind of heady topics, but in a way that, right, not very applicable, doesn't really matter. So I guess I would ask you, do you think, do you think the movie is unemotional especially when it comes to uh, like the main character Leonard that do you think, I don't know. Do you think it's an emotional movie or do you think there's an emotional heart to the movie? Or do you think most of the movie is just kind of a confusing tangle of philosophical ideas with very little emotion or heart behind it? Well, I'm kind of a, a cold unfeeling person myself. So <laughs> 
So I I don't I don't think that having a more human side to a movie, which I think it's important to point out, is a term that's kind of up for debate, at least as it applies to stories, storytelling. I don't think that's necessarily like the end all be all for a movie. So like uh, Godzilla doesn't have a lot of heart, but I think it still has a lot of merit as a movie because, uh, you know, it has its, its strengths and its aims lie in a completely different realm. And I think that, I think that Nolan isn't really trying to make a really emotionally affecting movie. He's trying to make a more intellectually stimulating one. And that's something that I'm absolutely here for. That's one of my favorite parts about Nolan movies. And I don't know, it's, I don't really want to get too into the weeds in terms of how we define emotional or, you know, the merits of that. But for me, working through Nolan's movies, understanding the plot, getting to the thematic core of things, I find that very satisfying and very pleasant. I mean, th those are emotions, so does that negate the criticism of these being unemotional movies? Yeah, I think that it's prob I think that that's probably the wrong question to ask. Not your question, but the question that people that people are criticizing. The the question that people are using as a critique of the movie. I don't think that it really matters if, like, the movie will make you cry or not, or if it will make you smile or something, cause, because different things are going to make people smile or cry. You know, I didn't cry at this movie, but there were moments, like, when I first watched it, I mean, we first watched it together, and when it got to the ending, which, by the way, I think is one of the great endings of movies, period. I mean, we were both laughing and grinning from ear to ear. We were having we were having a grand old time. I mean, so yeah, I don't think that just because it's not trying to evoke this really intense emotional response, a I don't think that means that it's unemotional, and b I don't think that means I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. That's sort of a more complicated answer than you were probably looking for, but yeah. No, that's really interesting because, and the reason I brought it up was because this time watching the movie and then I was reading some reviews on Letterboxd and one of the reviews kind of said that they're like, I don't think this movie would work as well as it does if there wasn't a part of you that kind of feels for Leonard and feels for kind of his situation, which I think we've talked about already with, right, all of the side characters using him in all of these mean spirited ways and manipulative ways. The thing that really stunned me in this movie is that Leonard's position is so tragic, I think, and he even contributes to the tragedy of his own situation. Like the scene when he hires the uh, prostitute to come and set up stuff from his wife, and we just see, we see the fallout of it before we see him setting it up. So we see this scene of him waking up and he's confused and he thinks he's back with his wife because he sees his wife's stuff. And then that results in him 
you know, he feels horrible. He feels this guilt. He wants to move on. He goes, he burns the stuff. And in the narration, he even says, he's like, I've probably burned hundreds of your things that he's consistently doing this horrible thing to himself, making him wake up and think his wife is alive again in some effort to escape these feelings that he's trapped in because he can't, right, move on because he can't experience enough time to grapple with his emotions in a meaningful way and move past this trauma he's experienced. And so I, I found the movie surprisingly emotional in that sense, this most recent time that I watched it. And so I think I enjoyed it even more, especially the ending that he's like, do I lie to myself to my, make myself happy? Of course I do. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't he? He's lied. Like he's, He's shown that he's capable of lying to himself. So the ending where it's like, is he making puzzles to try and solve, to try and feel better? I think that's fairly believable because we see him do it in the movie twice. Once when well, he makes I, the prostitute thing and then once with setting himself up to kill Teddy at the end of the film. End of the film. I'm quoting when I say end. <laughs> well, again, I think we see the dichotomy that exists in this movie between reality as perception and reality as impact uh, or effect, um, if that makes any sense, which I'm pretty sure it doesn't. But no, uh, it, oh, Nathan's, Nathan's nodding. It makes sense, yeah. Okay. So anyone who doesn't understand is just stupid. No, it's reality, reality as like you seeing it and then reality in terms of its effect on you. That. Or just its latent effect on other things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I think that that's a big part of the ending and a big part of the movie in general is that Leonard, like he says, isn't really, or maybe it's like Teddy says, I can't remember, isn't actually doing anything unusual. I, I think it is Teddy who says, you know, you lie to yourself to be happy, so what? Everyone does. The only difference for Leonard is that it seems more real, or at least it seems more real to us, because we see the impact of it more, and he is more on the perception side. Like he has no he has no way of coming to any kind of self-awareness or self-actualization. Because for him, the lie is so easy to, it's so easy to make the lie reality because his reality is so much based in perception that he can only hold on to for so long. Yeah. So he will, he can establish these threads of reality that can last him a lot longer than anyone else could just by writing them down. You know, he says that he writes stuff down and that, like, that becomes what's real for him. He has to trust his own handwriting. Yeah, it involves significantly less self-delusion. Like, when Teddy's saying, we all lie to each ourselves to be happy, I mean, I can look in the mirror and say, yeah, my mustache looks fantastic today. And, you know, <laughs> at some point, the truth, like, I have to either except that I do think it looks good or I have to just be honest with myself and be like, look, it doesn't look good. All right. It's fine. I do think it looks good though. So for the record, that was just <laughs> an example that Leonard can delude himself effortlessly because 
even if he achieves a self-awareness like I am deluding myself, 15 minutes later, he won't remember that he had that. As we see, I mean, at the end of the movie, he seems pretty self-aware that he's deluding himself. And then, right, the scene that we just saw show the scene that we just saw before that scene shows that that self-awareness didn't stick, that he's convinced that he's on the trail of John G. Right. Unless he were to unless he were to write it down, like write down, I am deluding myself, all of this is true, blah, 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 blah. Because that shifts it from the impact to a more tangible perception. So like if he went to the actual John G's gravestone and we can talk about whether or not we actually think that's true that teddy was telling the truth and he has killed the real john g or that john g was real at all but just operating in leonard's own framework if he went to john g's gravesite you know the site that represents the impact of his actions because it doesn't have that perception element for him that would be completely completely meaningless to him yeah, which is why he t- he takes those pictures, and why he has the one picture of him covered in blood. Maybe after he killed the real John G. Maybe after he just killed some random person for Teddy. You know, it. This movie definitely has an unreliable narrator. Yeah, well, and even more, I think this is one of the most ambiguous move and movie endings. I think because it doesn't just have an unreliable narrator. It has unreliable side narrators. Like, Teddy has no reason to be telling the... There's no reason for us to believe that Teddy is telling the truth to Leonard there at the end. Like, there's no reason to ever think any of the characters are telling the truth to Leonard at any point. And we have no reason to believe that Leonard is even able to know what necessarily is true. So... I think even more so than, like, the ending to Inception, which is a very ambiguous sort of ending... This movie is very much left up for people to believe any way they want to. I and I think that even fits into the, you know, narrative of the film that we just have to make something up and then run with it in the same way that Leonard just has to make up a story for himself maybe and then just live in that story. So, I don't know if I have a nailed down opinion. I think watching it this time, I felt less like Teddy was lying. So I guess I kind of landed on, I think, um, I think he has killed John G that Teddy was a cop who was helping him. And then afterwards, Teddy just kept using him to kill other people. And so he's just been a mercenary for like a year. But honestly, I, I feel like any of any of the possible interpretations could possibly be true. Yeah. I, I think that that's a good segue into talking about the side characters. Uh, there's not a lot of them, really. It's pretty much just Teddy and Natalie. But I do think, like we talked about earlier, it's really it's really cool how your perception there there's perception again. Um, your perception of them changes throughout the movie. So Natalie starts out, and you do think that she's a friend to Leonard. And then we have this other moment uh, later in the movie, later in the movie's runtime, not later in the movie's chronology, (laughs) where she's really, she's like berating him and calling him names and saying that she actually hates him. 
and eventually we learn that it's presumably because he, she, obviously she knows that he killed her boyfriend. And so our perception of her shifts, but watching it this time, knowing that beforehand, I feel like there's a legitimate element of, and maybe I'm, maybe this is just like wishful thinking or something because I want something to go well for Leonard. But, uh, I feel like there was an element of actual tenderness towards Leonard that Natalie displayed in what is chronologically her last scene with him, but is, you know, in the movie's timeline, her first scene. The the scene of them in the diner when she says goodbye and she gives him the information that I feel like she, you know, when you take the movie as a whole and you already know what's happened, I think there is a reading of that scene wherein she has sort of realized that she has been treating Leonard as if he's not real, or maybe even that she actually, at that point, becomes conscious of the fact that she thinks he's not real and just feels sorry for him. Like, at that point, she actually is operating out of pity, like it says uh, on the back of her picture. But, uh, and then obviously our perception of Teddy is just all over the flipping place. But uh, what do you think about Natalie as a character? Uh, Obviously, Carrie Ann Moss, she's a very talented actress, and she does a great job uh, in this movie, as does Guy Pearce and Joe, oh gosh, Pantoli, Joe P., Joe P. Joey P. Joey P. Big Joe P. does a great job. He's a reliably, he's really reliable as the sort of slimy but irresistibly charismatic uh, pseudo antagonist. But yeah, what do you, what do you think about Natalie? Uh, I think Natalie's really good. I would also second that Carrie Ann Moss really does a fantastic job in this movie. She's mostly known for. Uh, I think Trinity in the the Matrix mostly, but I think she does a really phenomenal job. And like you said, she adds a lot to where even though in that scene in the diner, right, if you're rewatching the movie, you know that she said all these things, that she hates Leonard, that she has all this animosity. Carrie Ann Moss does play it with some amount of tenderness and a sense of pity you know, she's being nice to him, that she does feel bad for his situation. So I think the side characters are really great, and they just add so much to this general sense of, you know, the movie building on all these ideas about perception and reality, that, like you said, Teddy's all over the place, that the opening shot of the movie is Teddy getting shot in the head, and we know that Teddy gets shot at the end at the end of this story, and so all of these scenes beforehand, they're kind of weird because Teddy's really friendly with Leonard. And also, can I just say this? Leonard is way cockier and meaner than a person in his situation has any right to be. Like, he just meets everyone with so much self-assuredness that is wholly unearned on his part. There's no reason that he should be going into the bar just like waltzing in and being like, yeah, everyone's going to know what's up. It's like, bro, you should be sneaking around and you should be being careful here. I just, 
and there's another scene with Teddy where I was just like, why are you behaving in this fashion? I think it's when Teddy's in the car and he's like, you know, a car this nice, you should lock. He's like really angry. And then he like, doesn't believe that he knows him and all this. And I just, it doesn't dock from the movie, but I just find that interesting that Leonard is so self-assured, despite the fact that he has no reason to be. But I think that just ties into that he feels like he has to be this person. Otherwise, he's, you know, falling apart at the seams every 15 minutes. But, yeah, I like the side characters. I'd like to talk a bit, since we spent a lot of time talking about thematic elements and stuff, before we get into the final stuff. You mentioned some acting, but on a technical level, I think this movie is really impressive. Uh, I don't think the cinematography is, like, mind-blowingly good, but it's pretty good. And the editing is obviously fantastic. I have edited two videos now for my film production club and keeping track of basic continuity is literally impossible in a linear video that's like three minutes long. So I can't imagine trying to edit something that's like two hours long that's constantly doubling back on itself. I feel like it would just be a humongous pain. So I think it makes sense the movie was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, I'd also like to say I really I'm a big fan of the music every time I hear the music for that closing for that ending and a part of it is the ending is so good but the music really adds a lot to this sense of momentum and building drive which is then carried along in when Hans Zimmer ends up scoring basically everything Nolan does after this point that a lot of his scores are defined by that building suspense and building drive. But um, what do you think of the technical, more technical elements of the picture? Uh, I would second that. I think that Nolan's cinematography style, his visual style, has never been really flashy. Uh, but it's it's been it's always been competent. So like Villeneuve, uh, his style, I think, especially in his later movies, uh, Denis Villeneuve, by the way, uh, his style. And often this is impacted, I'm assuming, by the fact that he works with Roger Deakins so much. But his style is a lot more grand and a lot more given to wide-angle shots, uh, you know, longer establishing shots, kind of fewer camera movements. The camera's typically fairly static, that kind of thing. Nolan, uh, his visual style, I think, is identifiable, but not necessarily distinct in the same way that Wes Anderson's is, um, if that makes any sense. But uh, this is also a, a an early movie of his. I think that the cinematography does become, that you do see a progression in his visual style, his visual language, as his movies uh, go on. I definitely second your opinion about the music. This is really the first time I noticed the music. And I wanted, I forgot to mention this when we were talking about the more human elements, the heart element of these of this story, because I think that the music is a big part of contributing to a very melancholy streak in this movie, uh, especially when Leonard is having his moments of reflection and his moments of struggle and doubt when he's uh, burning his wife's stuff and the orchestral moment the really big orchestral moments at the beginning and end they're very somber and very reflective and i i think once again 
it's not a soundtrack that I would necessarily listen to for pleasure. Although, honestly, I might listen to the the big orchestral moments. I might look it up, you know, on Spotify or something. But uh, it does a really good job of contributing to the feeling of the movie and the story, or not the story, obviously, but the atmosphere that the movie's trying to establish. And then, yeah, editing is usually not something that I notice, except in uh, in both of the Milos Forman movies that I've watched. I've I, both times I've thought that the editing in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus, I thought the editing in those movies was fantastic. But uh, I, basically, I'm saying I'll take your word for it, and, and I do think that editing is one of those things that is probably a thankless job that people only really notice it if it's like really really good which is rare a lot rarer than when people usually notice it when it's like really really bad yeah so speaking of things that are bad before we jump into our final ratings do you have any uh negatives i would say briefly it's not a huge negative but i do think the dodd subplot is both resolved very effortlessly, I guess you could say, and kind of feels phoned in, I guess is sort of the word I would say, that he just runs into him while driving on the street. He happens to run into him, and then he goes back to the hotel, manages to get in, and then beat him in a fist fight, even though he got... I do find both of the scenes with Dodd very funny where he's running and he's like, I'm chasing this guy. (laughs) And then when he wakes up in the bathroom and thinks it's his hotel, so he starts to take a shower and then Dodd comes in. But I do think that the Dodd subplot is a little threadbare compared to a lot of the other moments. And I think it kind of speaks to a sense of... um, just that it's an early movie. Nolan doesn't have a huge budget budget to be doing any big action sequences, and he doesn't really have a budget to maybe be doing a more elaborate way of this Dodd story coming to fruition. But I just every time I rewatch it, I feel like I forget about the Dodd story in like eighteen seconds after the movie ends. So that's probably my only negative. Uh, I agree. I think that the Dodd subplot is not very impactful. Uh, it, it is more memorable for the humorous moments. I would say that, and this is kind of, it was always going to happen with the with the structure. I think that sometimes it can get overwhelming in like the minutia of the movie's outlay. So like, as the movie was drawing to a close, I could not for the life of me remember how or when Leonard gave the license plate to Natalie, or like if he asked her to run it and figure out uh, who it was, or if she just noticed it or something, I could not remember. And that, you know, there are other moments like that where there are just logistical things that I don't remember being set up, which can be frustrating. It's not a really big deal because I'm sure it's somewhere in there and it is a fairly minor detail. But yeah, sometimes the structure does, it does get overwhelming. But 
yeah, that's probably my biggest uh, nitpick. All right. Uh, I'll go first then, jump into my rating. Yeah, for a lot of the reasons we've talked about, I think this movie is really fascinating. I think structurally it is just incredible how the story unfolds. It's I have I derive so much enjoyment from watching the movie unfold and being able to pick up all of these puzzle pieces and put to, them together by the end of the film. I think it raises a lot of really interesting ideas in a very accessible and easy to grasp sort of way that anyone who watches it is going to be very excited about it and want to show other people and want them to be able to talk about it, which is a feeling I can definitely relate to with a lot of movies, but especially Nolan movies. And yeah, there's just a few elements in the story that I think don't fit together that well, the Dodd subplot specifically, but yeah. And I even felt like it was a more emotional journey that I wrote in my notes that Leonard is almost creating a hell of his own making. And instead of putting any effort into right, trying to find ways to write down stuff like stop killing people, go to therapy or something. I don't know that he's perpetuating his own suffering, which is uh, a real bummer. And I don't like watching people do that, but I thought even the emotional heart of the movie came through <laughs> more than uh, previous times I've watched it. So it's a, it's a 9.1 for me. I think a 9.1 is a nice place to sit, sit the film at. All right. Yeah. I think this is a great movie. I, I think that this is one of Nolan's best, which is a, a crowded field uh, because oh. Nolan is, is a very, very talented filmmaker. I think this is a fantastic example of what makes him so good, the meticulousness, the novel sort of structure. When we talked about Nope, we talked about a little bit about how a lot of the discourse surrounding Jordan Peele is that he makes smart movies that are accessible to the common man. I think that Nolan probably makes movies that are a bit smarter and a bit less accessible to the common man, but still accessible but he also marries that uh, with, you know, actually paying some attention to the writing and making sure that uh, characters, uh, you know, that the movie is actually good and stuff. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Sorry. I'm sorry. Whatever. Doesn't matter. But yeah, I think that all of what makes Nolan great is in this movie. I do think the structure gets a little overwhelming at times, but it's not, you know, it's really not a big deal. I'm going to give it an, uh, oh gosh, I, I'm suddenly doubting myself. No, I'm going to give it an A. Nice. Nice. All right. Well then, uh, we got to do recommendations now, I guess, is we what we have to do. <laughs> we have to. We have to. They're clamoring are, for it. We are contractually obligated to do recommendations. That we should never have signed that contract with Satan to have a mildly popular <laughs> podcast. I know, in exchange for our souls, what a rotten deal. <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> our only we we don't and neither of us can play the fiddle, so we're we're pretty much done for. There's no way out for us. We're done for, and I don't think he's gonna take 
some really, really aggressively mediocre to bad trombone or trumpet playing as a, <laughs> as a contest. <laughs> All right. Great segue. Great segue. Let's talk about recommendations. I'll go first. Mine is a little... Elliot made a face when I told him that this was what I was going to do. So let me preface this. This is a rough movie. Let me just say the movie. First, it's The Father, which came out two years ago, I believe, two or three years ago. It's by Florian Zeller. It was a fantastic movie. I have only watched it once, but it is really, really fantastic. If you appreciate what Memento is doing in terms of editing, making it a very confusing experience while at the same time, it's somewhat rewarding to try and piece together pieces. Although I don't know how much you can do that with the father. This is another movie that plays with a lot of these same ideas about reality and perception, but this movie is much more focused on the emotional heart of the film. It follows Anthony Hopkins, who's playing the titular father and kind of him as he's slowly starting to lose his ability to perceive reality as it truly is. He's got some onset Alzheimer's or something. He's very old. And so the movie is from dementia. his... Dementia, yeah. But the movie's from his perspective. So the movie is very confusing where actors change, like a character changes actors in between scenes. The... It's unclear how long is between scenes sometimes. It can be very confusing, and it's a rough movie to watch. It's a hard movie to watch because of this emotional heart of the film. But if Memento, if you're kind of looking for a movie that maybe has more of an emotional heart than Memento, but plays with some of these same ideas and has some of the similar filmmaking techniques, I think The Father is a great movie. If you're just looking for a great movie, The Father is seriously fantastic it is so good i think everyone should watch it just be warned it is a bummer of a film so don't watch it if you're already sad yeah the the father is a is truly an incredible movie i i would give it an a plus uh just just for a mini review and yeah anthony hopkins performance in that movie is just the stuff of legends mm. oh yeah so yeah, um, I'm going to sort of cheat with my recommendation. We typically try to avoid recommending movies by the same director as the movie that we're reviewing. In this case, I'm going to give myself a pass because A, it's very hard to think of a similar movie to Memento, and B, um, this is definitely one of Nolan's lesser-known movies. It's actually his very first movie called Following. Uh, the basic story is it's about this guy uh, in London, I think, who has this weird relationship with another person, another guy. Uh, they do this thing called following where they'll just pick out, pick some random person out of a crowd and sort of stalk them for a day and like break into their house and then not take anything, but just like kind of move stuff around. Uh, and there's other parts to the story uh, but a lot of it, in or if I were to explain it, would spoil it. This is definitely, this is absolutely a Nolan movie. So the way it's structured, it kind of takes place along three separate timelines that it keeps on jumping back and forth between. But I think it does a really good job, sort of like <clears throat> in uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, 
a movie that has two separate timelines, I think it does a really good job of setting up, like in Memento, signposts so you always know what timeline you're in. And Little Women does the same thing. Yeah, so just like all of Nolan's movies, it's twisty and turny. Uh, it's very meticulously plotted, and it's really satisfying to watch it all come together. So if you're a Nolan fan, uh, and you've seen mostly his mainstream stuff, like the Batman movies and uh, Interstellar, and you know his more recent work, I would strongly recommend that you go back and watch his first movie, because I think it's... It's a really good movie for everyone, but especially for Nolan aficionados, I think it's it's definitely worth the watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nathan's making a lot Big of weird words. Faces. Big words. Uh, I do agree. I think you like following a bit more than me, but I do think it's really interesting. Also, it's a movie he made when he was like literally a film student. And so the fact that it's like halfway competent, I think is a miracle. Because I've seen other directors like student films and they're like literal trash. Damien Chazelle's first movie is garbage. <laughs> no one of my Damien Chazelle, please come on our podcast and talk about Babylon when it comes out. Oh, uh, or you know, not you know, just you could also stay away, Damien, if you wanted. Uh, no, one of my favorite stories, Nathan and I, or I, have this big book uh, about Christopher Nolan's filmography. Uh, and one of my favorite stories in it is his story about making following. Like, he just made it with a bunch of his friends on the weekends. And in between takes, they would, like, they would go to his house and his mother would make them sandwiches and stuff. The The making of this movie is, is a very wholesome story. <laughs> yeah, I agree. All right, well, this is the end of the podcast, the real end. We're not flipping things around, so sorry to anyone who was hoping to be confused and uh, struggled with listening to the podcast. If you want to, you know, you download the episode and you edit it backwards or something. You can do that. Make a fan edit. Make a fan edit. We would love to see a fan edit. We're a huge fan of that. We'd love to see all of our fans we're workshopping lots of different names for our fans, you know. <laughs> Mini Jellins. Huh? Mini Jellins. Mini Jellins. That's way better than what I was going to say. Great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, uh, have I mentioned have I mentioned that life is hard and full of disappointments? Jeez, this guy. Uh, yeah, great, Elliot. I'm so glad you got to sneak that in. Uh, thanks again for listening. We're really excited. We've got two exciting episodes coming up next week and then the week after that. So stay tuned. Try to stay uh, near a podcast hosting site so you can listen to those when they come out. Woohoo! All right. Uh, that's every everything for us. Bye.